0: Welcome to The Big Picture, the podcast series on global events, which comes to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the podcast companion to our Krasno Global Events series, which is available on our YouTube channel. The Krasno Global Events series is hosted by Professor Klaus Larus, the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC. The Big Picture is narrated and produced by myself, Willow Taylor Chang Yang, a Crasno Events Assistant. The Krasno Global Event series is a regular series of talks and discussions with high-profile experts from around the world, aiming to enhance our understanding and comprehension of global affairs, past and present. This podcast seeks to boil down these talks on some of the most crucial problems of our world to its main points, provide a lot of historical context, and contribute to our greater understanding of world affairs. After listening to The Big Picture, we encourage you to head to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash to watch the full event. Okay. Today's episode, the life, politics, and legacy of the last leader of the USSR, Mikhail Gorbachev, who died recently at the age of 91.
1: Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. I would like to welcome you to a special Krasno event. It is a special event about.
0: Our talk features former ambassador to the Soviet Union, Jack Matlock, who speaks with Professor Laras on this topic. Today's episode will also include the full talk with the former ambassador as he speaks on Gorbachev's life and his own experiences with this crucially important statesman. We hope you enjoy this episode of The Big Picture.
1: I'm Klaus Laras, and I'm the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you all for joining us. We have a very international audience today, and you can submit your questions in writing uh, via the chat function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Our two Krasno assistants will select the questions, summarize them perhaps a little bit, and then read them out aloud. Our special guest today is Ambassador Jack Matlock, who knew Gorbachev well, and in later years, they became good friends. Jack Medlock worked for the State Department and the National Security Council during one of the most tumultuous years of the Cold War. He was at the Moscow Embassy during the Cuban Missile Crisis and translated many of the letters and documents which went back and forth between Moscow and Washington. In the 1960s and 1970s, Jack Medlock worked as a Soviet expert at the State Department and in the Soviet Union as an American diplomat. In 1974, Jack Matlock was deputy ambassador in Moscow. And in 1981, he became acting ambassador at the US Embassy in Moscow. Then he became ambassador to to Czechoslovakia. And from 1987 to 1991, Jack Matlock was US ambassador to the Soviet Union. Jack Matlock participated in all but one of the many summit meetings between the United States and the Soviet Union between 1972 and 1991. And he got to know Gorbachev very well, including on a personal level. Gorbachev, for example, visited him in Greensboro, North Carolina in 2004, where Ambassador Medlock lived at the time. Jack Medlock wrote a number of well-regarded books, including one entitled Reagan and Gorbachev: How the Cold War Ended. Ambassador Medlock, thank you for finding the time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Great to have you here. It's not your first appearance at the Krasno Global Event Series. You have been here three times before, so it's great, always great to have you. Uh,
2: sorry, I can't be there in
1: person. Yes, it's a shame, but better by Zoom than nothing at all. And um, let me ask you, you must be very sad about Mikhail Gorbachev's passing. When did you last see him or hear from him?
2: Well, I last saw him about two years ago, and at that point he was uh, in very poor health, so that I think his his final years were not comfortable. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, we had developed, I think, a very a good personal relationship, and uh, I had been very much impressed by what he was able to achieve when he was president, and then. I interviewed him once or twice a year for several years after that, uh, when I was working on my books, including the one that you mentioned. He was always very open to discussing uh, the attitudes in the past and so on. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, certainly I benefited greatly from being able to present uh, also his perceptions of uh, of, of things as they uh, developed during this period when we ended the Cold War and uh, the and uh, communist rule in the Soviet Union uh, was removed. Uh, they, I think some of the most important things that happened uh, during the 20th century.
1: Yeah, what would you say uh, are his greatest achievements? George Kennan, another Soviet expert, spoke about a miracle which uh, uh, Gorbachev performed during his seven years in office.
2: Well, in many ways it was. First of all, he reoriented uh, Soviet foreign policy uh, and internal policy to remove it uh, from a basis on Marxism, Leninism, and the international class struggle. And actually, when you think about it, the whole Cold War was based upon uh, the, uh, you might say, the Marxist philosophy uh, that uh, dr- history was driven by class struggle and that the proletariat would replace the bourgeoisie and create a dictatorship of the proletariat. That had been the basis of soviet foreign and internal policy until gorbachev and he he was able to change that and uh, therefore uh, that really permitted us to negotiate it into the cold war an end that did not there had no losers uh they, it was we entered the cold war in the interest of all of our countries and it was done by negotiation and not by defeating one side or the other. The perception that since then, that we, the United States or the West, won the Cold War and the Soviet Union was defeated is absolutely wrong. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is, he moved as we reduced the arms races, we reduced the tensions uh, between the Soviet Union and the rest of the world, he began to try to reform the system at home. Uh, It was a totalitarian system, uh, not just authoritarian, but totalitarian. And uh, he recognized, I think from early on, as he put it later, we can't go on like this. And uh, he uh, therefore, step by step, he began to limit the power of the uh, the Communist Party to control everything from top down, and at the same time, he refused appeals to use force uh, to uh, to prevent change, which had always been done before. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and for the last uh, uh, two or three years of his. Uh, um, uh, the presidency, his leadership, uh, the uh, the country became remarkably open,
1: uh,
2: and uh, so on. But at the same time, uh, they developed uh, very difficult uh, uh, economic problems uh, because he was trying to uh, change the economy to. Uh, instead of a state-run economy totally to bring in market elements and so on, uh, but at the same time keep a socialist heritage. And I think that uh, uh, that, uh, that ran into difficulties also as he began to take off the total control of the Communist Party uh, and refusing to use the police state uh, he uh, it unleashed many of the tendencies, uh, such as the um, yeah. Russian nationalism. So that these internal uh, these internal pressures uh, were what eventually broke up the Soviet Union, uh, despite his efforts.
1: So I'm in the saying. end, in the end, he didn't succeed because his own country disappeared. Could he have done better? Where did it go wrong? What could he have done differently so that the Soviet Union didn't disappear? I think the only thing he could have done
2: uh, had you know, this was a moving train. The possibilities and what was happening. These things were happening with extreme rapidity as the things go. And he was dealing with many different issues, very serious issues. But as we were reducing our tensions abroad, uh, the internal problems were developing because first of all, he had opposition within the party, resisting his attempts to, I would say, to free up the country. He brought to Russian history for the first time in its entire history relatively free elections, that was an immense achievement Uh, and uh, and it was done in a way uh, that uh, actually a lot of the hardline uh, communists uh, were losing. Uh, He changed it from a one-party state to one that he was developing but had not developed into a multi-party system. Uh, these various things, but everything did get out of hand because the economy uh, tended to collapse. Uh, Now, what could he have done differently? Well, he could have used force, and if he had, it is very likely the country would have developed into a vicious civil war, uh, given the things. And uh, the fact that it didn't, uh, that there was a largely peaceful uh, uh, change. That immense empire, uh, simply uh, with, there was some violence, but it was compared to the minor as compared to what happens when other empires have imploded or been put down. So that uh, I would say that the idea that somehow he made, of course, he made mistakes in many cases, particularly in his judgment of people at times. Uh, but none of us, frankly, those looking on, uh, they, it was very hard Thanks, yes, to thank imagine you. how he was going to succeed in doing all these things. So that uh, I, uh, I, I would say that the only way that he could have preserved the system for a while would be to avoid changes uh, in the rule and to keep the same totalitarian system that had brought about stagnation and so on. And of course, that was not his aim. Uh, So uh, I know that, you know, Russians, many of them do not appreciate what he did. Uh, And they look at the uh, difficult times that came later, but I would remind them it was not Gorbachev who broke up the Soviet Union, it was his rival Boris Yeltsin, whom Gorbachev allowed to stay in, uh, in politics even when he was sort of expelled from the leadership and allowed to run in the elections. Uh, and uh, uh, then it was later uh, Yeltsin who in effect conspired with the uh, leaders of Belarus and Ukraine uh, to break up the Soviet Union. And uh, Gorbachev at that time refused to uh, stop this process using force at a time where he could have commanded that to be used. And I think he didn't do it because he was the first Russian leader, I believe in history, who refused to apply force to keep himself in power. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very important precedent and one that most Russians simply don't recognize today. They went through very difficult times later, but it was not Gorbachev's fault, it was Yeltsin's. And the Russians themselves had elected Yeltsin, the leader. So their elected leader is the one who was the key element in bringing down the Soviet Union and breaking it up?
1: Thank you. But already during uh, Gorbachev's times, the economy didn't functioning uh, didn't function very well. There were hard, miserable times during the Gorbachev years, and people took came to the streets and protested. Uh, if Gorbachev had succeeded, then we would have a reformed Soviet Union, which would still continue to exist. Would that really be better than having the Soviet Union uh, disintegrate and disappear as we saw in 1991?
2: Well, one obviously one can't (laughs) predict uh, all of the things that might have happened. It certainly seemed to many of us, including President Bush and many of us who were close to the situation, that the... uh, that all except the three Baltic countries whose independence we supported throughout. We never recognized they were legally part of the Soviet Union. We always pressed that they should be restored to their independence. But except for those three, we really thought it would be better. And as much as Gorbachev was pushing for a voluntary federation, that it would be better for them to stay together. Uh, If you could get a more democratic and voluntary federation, it would be better for everybody. And that is precisely what President Bush told the Ukrainian parliament when he spoke to them on August 1st, 1991.
1: Which was very criticized in the US.
2: Yes. And he said at that time, he endorsed uh, Gorbachev's a Union Treaty and warned them to beware of suicidal nationalism. That was a very prophetic warning. Now, obviously we had very little influence in what was happening at that point, but it is very clear that, uh, at least uh, to me, that there was a possibility there uh, with large degree of autonomy uh, in in them and more bottom-up democracy. Uh, that uh, uh, it would have been better for them not to break up into uh, uh, 12 separate countries. That is 12 other than the three Baltic States.
1: Thank you. Could the United States have done more to keep Gorbachev in power by, for example, which was mentioned at the time, offering a generous Marshall Plan for Gorbachev's uh, new reformed Soviet Union. The uh, Bush, for example, said, we can't afford it. We, we don't want to do it. Was that a major mistake?
2: That's something we can debate. At the time, it seemed to me that uh, the, they, they were having great problems uh, with the uh, with the breakdown of the, centrally controlled economic system. And uh, it was not simply a matter of throwing money at it. They didn't have the structure. So I said, this is not a case of a pump that needs priming. That may have been the case in Western Europe with the Marshall Plan, for example. Uh, But uh, this time, the pump wasn't there and throwing money at it may have been like pouring water on sand. However, I think we were not very uh, creative in trying to think of ways that we could help. And I would mention that uh, that uh, uh, the former Prime Minister Thatcher uh, came to visit Moscow in the spring of 1991. It was just a few months after she had been replaced as prime minister. And uh, she, she visited and then asked the British ambassador to invite me to come and because she had a message for President uh, Bush. And uh, uh, she, she said that, you know, we must convince, uh, we must, uh, we must convince President Bush uh, to start helping Gorbachev. Uh, And uh, I sort of, i explained to her the difficulties there, what I've just said. And she looked at me and she said, "Uh, you are talking like a diplomat. (laughs) Why can't you think like a statesman? And, you know, she was probably right. There there should have been ways if we had gotten involved earlier. But then, I would say in the Bush administration for a year or so, uh, at the first of the Bush administration, they did not want to get involved in any cooperation to to change the economic system. Uh, And then when Gorbachev began to ask for help, Well, we were in something of a recession at home and Bush uh, felt that he was unable uh, to take the lead in doing any financial help. So that uh, I cannot say, you know, now that if we had been willing, we could have solved everything, Um, most unlikely. Mm -hmm. But these were very complex issues. And I would also point out that when we look at these individual issues, whether internal or external, that we had several absolutely, I would say, extremely important things happening all simultaneously. While the Soviet Union was beginning to come apart, we were negotiating some of the most important strategic arms agreements. We were negotiating over the future of Europe, the unification of Germany. Uh, And uh, the countries in Eastern Europe were going democratic and against the communists, but then uh, we hadn't defined what their relationship would be with others. And internally, of course, uh, the Soviet Union was going through all of uh, the economic uh, uh, problems of the change. So it was remarkable the number of issues that he had to deal with simultaneously at that time. And as things began to be pressurized at home, in one case in January 1991, after there had been an attack on the television tower in Vilnius, Lithuania, one that Gorbachev did not order and did not authorize, uh, uh, President Bush sent a letter warning him that we would have to uh, back off with some of our agreements uh, to cooperate if violence continued in the Baltic countries. Mm-hmm. And I, I read, I went in by myself to uh, read the letter to him, and I read it uh, in Russian translation. And uh, you know, his answer to me, first of all, he asked me uh, my assessment of the situation there, and I thought, you know, he had some major problems, and I had told him, you know, how I. I, uh, I, I worried about some of the things that were happening there, particularly the growing violence in the Gulf uh, area. And uh, uh, he listened to me and then he said, please explain to your president that this country is on the brink of a civil war and I must do everything I can to prevent that. And that means that my policy is going to have some zigs and zigs but this is like a sailboat that at times has to move in a direction different from its objective. Thank uh, you. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then, then he said uh, this was also another issue we were dealing with at that time uh, was this was just before the, uh, the Gulf War uh, when we were trying to get Soviet support for resisting the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And uh, Gorbachev had changed Soviet policy uh, to uh, either vote with us or sometimes abstain in the, in the Security Council in order to let that go forward. And Gorbachev's final comment is, well, tell the president that if politics requires him to do some of these things, I'll understand but let him know that I will carry out all of my agreements, meaning the international ones. The point was that we were dealing not with individual issues, big as they were, but with many international internal issues, very basic ones, all simultaneously.
1: Let Let me just ask you, how serious was Gorbachev Uh, in reducing nuclear weapons and the strategic threat, the nuclear threat between the West and the East. Was it done mostly for economic reasons because he needed to lessen the arms race to save money to save his own economy. And he then later wanted to obtain, of course, loans from, from the West, including from German Chancellor Kohl. who you can say that, uh, and some uh, scholars argue that, that Gorbachev's agreement to German unification was essentially bought by generous aid coming from uh, the German Chancellor. Or was it a more genuine uh, desire to come to an agreement with the Western countries?
2: I think that he obviously had economic reasons to want to uh, reduce the defense budget. But the basic reasons we started reducing was because we were in a very dangerous situation. Uh, And uh, both he and President Reagan were true believers in the necessity of eliminating nuclear weapons they came very close to agreeing to do so. And uh, they both hated uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the situation that we were confronting each other with nuclear weapons. And uh, the, uh, uh, so there were, there were very powerful reasons on both sides to try to reduce these. Now that gets very complicated over time because there were more than one issue involved, and uh, uh, but uh, that is you know we were able to solve the intermediate range, so-called INF, uh, by eliminating them and eliminating them with complete uh, verification that took years to negotiate and Gorbachev for the first time allowed the sort of on-the-site uh, verification, which previous uh, Soviet leaders had not been willing to do. So uh, now, uh, obviously, but this was done because he saw the threat of, of, of nuclear war, and that became particularly clear to him, I think, after the Chernobyl disaster. Uh, and uh, uh, these were, as I said, many of these things were going on at the same time, but we had started the, uh, the whole uh, effort to reduce nuclear weapons uh, earlier. And, uh, and as we were able to do that, it helped that these other things were, uh, were being negotiated. At one point, Uh, When I was director of Soviet affairs in the State Department, we had counted 83 negotiations we had going with the Soviet Union in various areas, economic and other things. So this was an extremely complex process that involved many things. And when you isolate any one of them, you can say, well, why didn't this happen sooner? Why didn't that happen? But when you get right down to it, we started, you might say, uh, thinking about negotiation with, with Gorbachev uh, uh, when he came in, the, uh, uh, in, in. 19 was it 85, I believe. By 1989, we were negotiating all, almost the same uh, uh, negotiating strategy. We were solving virtually all the problems we
1: had. You were you were at the Reykjavik meeting, I understand.
2: Uh, but
1: How, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How close did it come to uh, to to the abolishing of nuclear weapons in East and West? Was that really? Well, a we, agenda? we came
2: very close to an agreement to do so. Whether we could have carried it out is something else. But at the meeting in Reykjavik in uh, October 1986, uh, at one point uh, when uh, uh there was uh, an agreement that they c- should agree to eliminate them, uh, but then Gorbachev wanted uh, Reagan to limit his strategic defense initiative more than Reagan was willing to. So somehow that eluded them. Uh, and uh, um, uh, but any event that was something that both of them, really wanted, and I know this in Reagan's case, because when Gorbachev had earlier proposed the elimination of nuclear weapons, and everybody in our bureaucracy said, oh, that's ridiculous, we can't do it. Uh, Reagan said, you're not gonna criticize that. That's exactly what we should be doing. And we had problems with some of the other uh, uh, things. But I think it was that issue uh, more than any other, that the two eventually were able to bond. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, this is, uh, so it is rather difficult when you go back and and look at these various issues in the full context of how they took place, to say that, well, you know, uh, things would have been better if this happened or if that happened, Uh, you know, We can't be sure, but I do know that uh, uh, by uh, 1988, uh, Gorbachev had already dropped the fundamental philosophy that had fueled the Cold War. Mm -hmm. That is, I mentioned before uh, the class struggle. And that was actually implicitly dropped in a speech to the United Nations on December 7th, 1988. Uh, and the thing is, and he said then, there could be no limit on uh, the, on a, a country's choice of political system. And of course, he allowed that to happen in Eastern Europe. Uh, encouraged yeah. changes. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm saying that, and of course, as Eastern Europe was being free, And then we got into the whole question of German unification and whether a united Germany would be allowed to stay in NATO. Uh, And uh, this was going on at the same time that he was having uh, the the economic difficulties uh, caused by changes that had to be made. If you were going to have a free economy, you had to start taking the, uh, the State control out of a lot of things. But, you know, I have said that as far as the economy is concerned, it was as if they were trying to take a submarine and turn it into an airplane, keeping it operating all the time with the same crew.
1: <laughs> and
2: if you can figure out how to do that, maybe you could have told us what we did wrong.
1: Thank you. On the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin uh, Wall fell. Uh, And a year later, Germany was united. And it took many, many months for Gorbachev to actually give his agreement to German unification within NATO. Uh, What made him, in the end, turn around and agree? Despite Thatcher's and also Mitterrand's, continuing skepticism. But in the end, Gorbachev gave his agreement. And that, of course, took the wind out of uh, Thatcher's and also Mitterrand's counter arguments. So what was decisive for him agreeing to German unification?
2: I think what was decisive for him was the recognition uh, that uh, uh, it would be wrong for Russia to force uh, Uh, the Germans apart, that the Germans should have a right to have their own state and unity. I think, and as far as geopolitics was concerned, I think he and some of his principal advisors, despite all of the passions uh, uh, brought on by the Second World War, understood that in the future, uh, uh, Soviet or Russian, relations with Germany were going to be absolutely crucial uh, to them. Uh, so uh, that was, and I, you know, at the time, the year we were negotiating, uh, I recall uh, discussing this with one of the uh, principal scholars, uh, the head of their institute MMO. Uh, and I said, well, are you know, are you going to continue to uh, oppose uh, uh, German unification. And he said, Well, first of all, we know it's going to happen now. They didn't for a while, uh, but uh, uh, we know it's going to happen. And he said, You know, the British and the French are encouraging us to block it, but we can't do that because we do not be, we cannot let our country be, uh, you might say, the, the fall guy who permitted, who prohibited German unity. So there was that. But there was also the feeling uh, at first that, okay, the Germans can unite, but they're going to have to leave NATO. Uh, And the thing is that any of these, according to our agreements at the end of the Second World War, uh, the uh, victorious, the the four powers uh, that considered the victors, Uh, uh, including the Soviet Union, uh, had uh, rights to approve any of these arrangements. They had, I believe, something like uh, 300,000 troops uh, stationed in East Germany. There was no way we were going to force them to take them out. But Gorbachev understood, I think also, uh, that at a certain point, if there is unity and he leaves those troops there, and that they, if there is, you know, if there are problems, uh, uh, he uh, uh, he he really could not really or should not uh, even consider uh, using force. So in a sense, and it is true as you suggested earlier, that he felt that uh, uh, that he was doing a considerable favor, and that uh, uh, and that uh, West Germany should. Uh, uh, help finance uh, his uh, economic problems. They had no housing for those troops that were in Germany, uh, and to bring them back and then you might say take them out of the military, you're going to have you're going to have a lot of very unhappy, unemployed families. These were complex issues. So yes, he pressed hard, and I know. Uh, some of our allies felt that too. I know Margaret Thatcher would say, you know, Germany has to pay a lot of the costs, uh, uh, and uh, that uh, yeah, if they want, you know, their unity fine, but uh, they uh, they should be uh, uh, paying uh, this because they can afford it, and, and the rest of us can't. Now, and uh, they did, and they did. <laughs> yeah. Students, yeah. A lot of people.
1: Yeah, thank thank you. Uh, um, Before we come perhaps to the the present with uh, the relations between Gorbachev and Putin, which are very interesting, uh, let me ask you about the coup of August 1991, which of course eventually brought down Gorbachev. Did he not expect something like that to happen? Did he underestimate the the consequences of his own reform program? Did he underestimate also Boris Yeltsin in in the end? Uh, or could he have prevented the coup if he had been more skillful? Perhaps. How would you say see that? Well, he he
2: faced the possibility of a coup much earlier, right and it was there all along. I think that uh, if he made a mistake, it was placing too much trust in his own security organs. Uh, although uh, Kuchkov, who was uh, by 1990 and 91, the chairman of the KGB, he had originally been a a Gorbachev supporter and uh, Gorbachev had promoted him. Uh, But uh, uh, he and others uh, began to be very um, uh, very much worried about the, uh, the Soviet Union coming apart, so to speak, and wanted him to declare martial law and he kept refusing. And this started back when, uh, even in 1990, uh, when the Lithuanians declared independence. And there was, I think, a a real danger that if Gorbachev had approved that formally, uh, he would have been removed in a coup. Uh, That was, many people thought that. Now, as it turned out, uh, the very people who, had organized uh, without his uh, uh, without his anticipation, the attack on the television counter and Bill News were the ones that eventually uh, tried to remove uh, Gorbachev who did the coup in August which was really the cause eventually of the total breakup of the Soviet Union uh, and uh, but uh, that uh, that was one in which. You ask, you know, did we predict? I sent my first message to Washington in 1990, in June, I believe, that the Soviet Union could break up. I didn't predict that it necessarily would, but it could. And I think that I was probably the first uh, in the US government that pointed out that possibility. Most people haven't thought about it. But the reason I, Pointed that out was as I saw within the Russian Federation, uh, the RSFSR, uh, that the uh, that there was a Russian nationalism developed that really wanted to shed the other republics, and if that and they were talking about turning the Soviet Union into something like the EU. Now, without the support of Russians given the fact that the other nationalities, many of them, were also beginning to pull away, you could say, my goodness, (laughs) who's going to hold it together? Uh, So uh, we were quite aware in our embassy, though I must say this was not the general view uh, in the world as a whole, uh, that uh, uh, he was walking on a very uh, tight rope and that he could be removed at any time. Those of us who were old-timers remembered how Khrushchev had been removed when his uh, uh, reforms uh, continued. And you, you uh, knew that uh, Gorbachev was running, in many cases, uh, the same sort of threat. Mm-hmm. So that uh, uh, that, uh, that was one issue. But as far as the actual coup that occurred, uh, in the summer of 1991 at a point when I had already announced that I would be leaving in about six weeks. Uh, I had been there four and a half years, and, and uh, uh, they were great years professionally, but uh, uh, I thought it was time for me to uh, leave and do something else. Uh, and uh, uh, the mayor of Moscow, who was one of the elected uh, Democrats, they they began to call them with a little D. Uh, He called on me uh, privately. Uh, I had uh, invited him to lunch and he had said, well, he couldn't come to lunch, but he'd like to pay a courtesy call. So when we sat in my study and discussed uh, sort of uh, local uh, city politics, uh, he wrote on a slip of paper that a coup is being prepared against Gorbachev and he wanted to get word to Yeltsin. Yeltsin was in Washington at that time and was going to be seeing uh, President Bush. And of course I said, okay, I'll send a message. Uh, But uh, I didn't say it, I wrote it. Uh, And uh, uh, then I asked, I wrote in, in Russian, who is behind this? And then he wrote, Four surnames, uh, and well, of course, it turned. Uh, these turned out later. Three of them, three of the four, were in the the coup leaders, and the other had, had had also been involved. So this turned out to be quite accurate. So I sent it to Washington, and uh, President Bush told Yeltsin in the meeting, gave him that report. And he asked Yeltsin what to do, and Yeltsin said, why don't you warn Gorbachev? So then I got a message on secure telephone that I should go and warn Gorbachev. And I, I said, look, I'll certainly go and tell him we have this report, but I don't believe I should name the people because how could the American ambassador without any real evidence, that was independent of what the mayor had put down, uh, tell the president uh, that the head of his security organization, the head of his army, the speaker of his parliament, that people of that, room you know, were conspiring against him. I said, we, we have no direct evidence of this. And he said, well, of course. So when I went in to, uh, then I got an immediate appointment, uh, and uh, uh, and I made my presentation by saying we have a report that we cannot confirm, but it is sufficiently serious that the president wanted to convey it to you. And then I said that uh, the word is that there is a conspiracy underfoot uh, that could take action uh, uh, at almost any time. And uh, at first he chuckled a bit and turned to his assistant Chernaya and said something about the naive Americans. Uh, and then he turned back and thanked me and said, "Oh, don't worry, I, I, I'm sure there's nothing to that. Uh, your intelligence has probably picked up some, you know, rumors." Well, uh, I tried to disabuse him of that by repeating. Uh, as I said, we cannot confirm. I meant that to imply this is not an you know, hard intelligence. Uh, we cannot confirm, but it is sufficiently serious that we thought it should be called to your attention. Well, uh, then Bush was able to call him the next day. Uh, and when they were on the telephone, it was a line and you know, at that time, the KGB controlled all of the secure communications. And Bush, uh, when he said, did you see Matlock? And, uh, and Gorbachev said, yes, thank you for sending him in. I can tell you 1,000%, there's nothing to that. And uh, but, but thanks for sending him. Uh, we've said we were friends, and now you've proved it. Uh, and Bush said, "Well, you know, I really wouldn't have bothered you, uh, but uh, Popov and Yeltsin thought you ought to know." Well, so he he uh, inadvertently named my source. Uh, uh, now, uh, so that uh, Gorbachev then uh, actually, uh, when Bush later came on a visit a few weeks later. Uh, Popov told me later that Gorbachev had had actually shaken his finger at him when he came into a reception saying, what are you doing telling these fairy tales to the Americans? But then, months later, after the coup failed, Soviet Union broke up, I asked Popov (laughs) uh, that uh, he never told me who his source was. But uh, Uh, He said, you know, how did it leak out that I had (laughs) given you this information? And I said, well, you know, it was the president himself who named it on the telephone. And then to my surprise, uh, Papa said, well, that was probably a good thing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Kuchkov, of course, knew what was in that phone call. And he realized he had a leak. He had to stop all of his preparations. And that may well be why the coup failed. So this this tells you, you know, you might say how uh, unexpected things happen. How Murphy's Law has
1: never been repealed. Uh, and uh, but, but uh, Gorbachev, if it's true it, that what he said that he didn't believe that a coup was uh, about to happen, was that genuine or did he pretend it was uh, not happening or couldn't happen?
2: No, I think he genuinely did not think that Kuchkov, who at one point had been one of his loyal supporters, was capable of organizing this. Uh, I think, uh, and uh, he was proceeding, you know, to proceed with the, uh, 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 with the Union Treaty. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I think that uh, 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 he uh, he genuinely uh, did not realize that some of the people who had been his friends were capable in effective of betraying him. Mm-hmm. but otherwise, he he otherwise, know that, yeah. that they were under uh, they were under pressure uh they were certainly many of them advising him to declare martial law earlier uh, both regarding the Baltics uh, and then in general, and when they started having strikes and so on. So that uh, he was under that pressure. Uh, But uh, uh, now uh, he has never explained uh, why. I can understand that at that time there were several members of parliament, a couple of lieutenant colonels, Uh, who were very outspoken about the need to remove Karmichol and he probably thought that you know our intelligence was referring to those Mm -hmm. as I said although I tried to steer him away from thinking that I was giving him an intelligence report uh, in general a report like that the Russians will always think that well this must be their intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, uh, organization uh, that has produced this but uh, uh, so uh, in any event, uh, I think that it, it did come as a surprise to him, uh, a great surprise. And I think that uh, it is clear that uh, uh, particularly the impact on uh, Rasa Gorbachev's health, uh, she came close to a nervous breakdown. So the later accusations that Kuchkov and others made, all that Gorbachev had sort of encouraged that, I think are
1: totalized. Yes, and otherwise he probably wouldn't have gone to his dacha if he had had an inkling what was in the pipeline. Thank you for this uh, very interesting episode. Um, Before we come to the Q&A in a few minutes' time, let me ask you about the relationship between Gorbachev and Putin. That was a very strange relationship. Partially Gorbachev seemed to be supportive of Putin. Uh, Partially he seems to have been highly critical of Putin. But Gorbachev did approve of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So he was on the side of Putin uh, in this instance at least. Do you have deeper insights from your conversations with Gorbachev, how he viewed the Putin regime in, in Moscow, and also how we saw uh, these recent developments uh, since February of this year, the uh, invasion of Ukraine.
2: Well, uh, here again, this depended on the time and the issue. Just after Yeltsin named Putin sort of uh, acting president, uh, I was uh, I had a meeting uh, with Gorbachev. Uh, it was when I was doing interviews connected uh, with the book I wrote on Reagan and Gorbachev. And when I came in, he started talking about contemporary politics. I didn't even ask him. Uh, Yeltsin had named this fellow Putin, and I remember he said, "This guy is a mystery. He's a black box. He has no experience." Uh, You know, what what can we expect? Uh, And obviously, uh, not at all. However, when Putin took charge, the attitude of the government toward Gorbachev changed radically. Uh, They, for example, when Gorbachev had traveled abroad uh, in the United States and elsewhere, as long as Yeltsin was president, he was never received by. Russian ambassadors uh, was never uh, uh, entertained there, and as a matter of fact, uh, 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 the feeling uh, you know among diplomats was that uh, uh, Gorbachev had to be avoided if you wanted to be, uh, you know, a friend with Yeltsin, uh, and uh, but as soon as Putin uh, became uh, in charge, first his acting president and then uh, he was elected uh, president, uh, the Soviet embassies began to have Gorbachev stay with them to sponsor functions and so on. So the government started treating Gorbachev more decently, like a former president, uh, once Yeltsin was no longer president. And either that or because... You know, when Putin came in, Russia was totally uh, bankrupt, and and Putin did have a reputation as someone who could get things done in a system that uh, things didn't get done very much. So that within a couple of years, uh, I know that uh, Gorbachev came, was in New York, and then a meeting with the Council on Foreign Relations, he was asked about Putin. This was early on, and his answer then was, well, the country is in a real mess, but it looks as if he is starting to deal with some of it, and uh, maybe he can. He said, it's uh, it's gonna be very difficult. Now, later, I think he was also very critical. Uh, when Putin began to restrict, uh, the rights of Russians. And uh, uh, when you began to get the, you know, the uh, uh, suppression of dissent and so on, he was highly critical of those. Uh, he supported a publication uh, that was, uh, 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 that uh, uh, crit- criticized uh, uh, many of these things. Uh, now, uh, when it came to uh, uh, now, you, you mentioned that he didn't criticize taking Crimea. Well, of course, he never really approved the breakup of the Soviet Union. He thought that was a very mis- uh, great mistake, and he blamed, uh, of course, Yeltsin uh, for that. And in particular, I don't think any Russian would have uh, approved of letting Crimea uh, 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 be in a country which became a member of NATO. That's one of their principal naval bases. And the fact that Yeltsin had let Ukraine have Crimea, despite history, was certainly something Gorbachev would never approve of. And it was done peacefully. Yeltsin, of course, uh, uh, Putin followed procedures, uh, that the United States had followed uh, in separating Kosovo from Serbia uh, after, and they did it without any uh, casualties. Uh, uh, so that, uh, and one can say that it was very clear that uh, Crimea, which under the Soviets had had a autonomous status, uh, once the Uh, Ukraine became independent, and it was part of Ukraine, the Ukrainians tried to eliminate the autonomous status. Uh, The people never were given a chance to vote as to whether they preferred to be in Ukraine or Russia, even though up until Khrushchev's time, they had been part of Russia. So these are very complex issues, and in this case, obviously, Putin was moving for strategic reasons. If there had not been any possibility of NATO moving and of Ukraine becoming part of NATO, I think he would never have taken uh, Crimea. But that's why he did. And I think that uh, it was rather hard for Gorbachev to criticize that when he thought it was a huge mistake in the first place uh, to break up the Soviet Union And in particular, if it was going to break up for Russia to approve Crimea, uh, you know, as uh, part of of Ukraine.
1: He didn't
2: publicly criticize that, but he did publicly criticize uh, Putin for many things, and particularly all of the domestic crackdowns.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, what about the, 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 the invasion and the attack on uh, Ukraine? How did Gorbachev see that? I'm sorry? The, the recent attack on Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia is waging. How did Gorbachev see that? How did, did he comment on that?
2: I'm not sure he made a public statement. He could not have approved it. I mean, he was against using force these things. But mm-hmm. I'm not aware. One thing: he was extremely ill, as I pointed out. He's been ill for about two years. Mm-hmm. And no, uh,
1: uh, no, I understand. Thank you. Let me ask you: How did Gorbachev reconcile? A statement I'm not aware of. It, yeah, but
2: I can understand why. Uh, at that point, he, uh, his his health was such he was probably not making any public statement.
1: Uh, In a minute, we come to our uh, questions from the audience. Just uh, a final question. How did Gorbachev reconcile the fact that he is a hero in the United States, a hero in Europe, particularly in Germany, and he's vilified in his own country in Russia? Did that depress him? Uh, How did he see that? It must not have been very pleasant for him.
2: He was aware of it and thought it was quite unfair. You know, he said in his you might say concession speech, Uh, when he uh, said that he was ceasing uh, his function as uh, president of the Soviet Union, he described how they had turned a totally totalitarian dictatorial system into one that now had elections and processes. And I think that is the point. It's a great achievement. Now, it was not Gorbachev who broke up the Soviet Union. It was Yeltsin. And Yeltsin was elected by the people uh, in the Russian Federation as their leader. So if the Russians don't like the fact that it was broken up, they shouldn't be you know, blaming Gorbachev. And they certainly, most of them, should remember. And I think very, very few would want to go back to conditions uh, that the uh, economic conditions that were in the Soviet Union before Gorbachev took office. Uh, uh, so the thing is, I think that there, there is a great unfairness. And what uh, they, they look at it, uh, uh, the situation, they owe him a lot. And it was their own votes that brought about the situation that broke up the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, I don't think that was totally inevitable. But on the other hand, who knows what would have happened otherwise? As we mentioned before, it's, uh, many of us at the time thought that everybody would be better off if there could be a democratizing voluntary federation. And uh, uh, certainly it would have been easier to deal with the economic problems if you didn't suddenly have uh, uh, the barriers between the various republics. When uh, during the Soviet Union uh, and during the Russian empire earlier, most economic development uh, tied them all together. And you, uh, so uh, I think there were a lot of reasons uh, that in general, but uh, everybody wanted to get rid of communism and getting rid of the communism seemed to me getting rid of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so uh, they didn't really try the other option, uh, that is to let the Soviet Union evolve into an increasingly democratic state uh, with an economy which developed uh, on uh, on market uh, uh, basis with with private property and and these other things. Uh, The problem is none of these huge changes can occur overnight. And uh, uh, I think that uh, people uh, look at a number of the conditions which were probably inevitable given the circumstances of what they were trying to change. And they blame it on Gorbachev uh, rather than those who at that time were in charge, like Yeltsin, for example.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Some of what you said I think is controversial. Some people will not agree at all with what you say. Some people will wholeheartedly agree with you and think you make a lot of sense. Let's uh, turn to our audience and turn to our two Krasner assistants who uh, may have some questions from the audience. If you haven't yet written in, if you want to ask Ambassador Matlock a question or agree with them, express your views, then please, if you're a member of the audience, uh, submit a question and write it in via the chat function of your Zoom screen. Willow, would you like to ask the first question to Ambassador Medlock?
0: Certainly. Thank you so much. Um, We have a question from John McKay in Cincinnati. Um, So Gorbachev sought financial help from the Bush administration um, and later from the Group of Seven but was turned down. Do you see this as a missed opportunity to keep Gorbachev in power?
2: I didn't hear the first phrase.
0: Gorbachev sought financial help from the Bush administration, oh, he um, sought and later, help. yes, yeah.
2: You know, the problem there was uh, that, as I said, the uh, the system had started reforming, but it was not yet reformed. And um, I think that there, uh, we should have been the United States and our West European allies, should have been more helpful earlier. Uh, the beginning in the beginning of the Bush administration, one of my recommendations had been to become, to get involved in trying to advise and assist the transition to a market economy. And the Bush administration and Secretary of State Baker turned that down, uh, thinking that, well, uh, uh, Gorbachev and the Soviets just want in these international economic organizations in order to sabotage. I think that was no longer the case, and I think it was a mistake for us to keep aloof from the initial attempts to begin to deal with the problems of transition. I thought at the time we and East Europeans who were also dealing with this, but they had more experience uh, with a, a non-communist economy than the Russians because uh, they'd been subjected to the communist system a shorter period. I thought that uh, we should encourage sort of general cooperation in, in dealing with the transition. Uh, but uh, we didn't do that. We didn't come in until uh, it was a question, I think, of, of, uh, uh, of aid. It is one that uh, Margaret Thatcher, for example, the, the British prime minister was in favor of Large largely uh, thinking particularly from the United States and Germany. Uh, and uh, so there were others who obviously th- uh, thought that uh, we should be helping more. But the problem by 1991 was that as yet, they had not yet converted the system from the old command system uh, to uh, something that uh, uh, worked uh, as a market economy. And just throwing money at that uh, wouldn't have been sufficient. So I think that we probably perhaps missed a chance to be involved earlier and helping with the planning uh, and, uh, uh, and easing out some of the hard bumps uh, that might have
1: worked. Who knows? Thank you. The the questioner, uh, John McNay, fully agrees with your answer. He just writes in. Uh, <laughs> <which> is nice. <laughs> Jess, would you like to ask the next question?
3: Yes, of course. Um, this question comes from Scott Schwartz, and he asks, uh, during Gorbachev's administration, how much effort or information did he release in regards to Stalin's administration to the Russian people? This is from Andover, Massachusetts.
2: Your understand. voice is breaking up. Yes. I, oh, I do not understand. Can you repeat it?
3: Yes. Okay. This question comes from Scott Schwartz, and he asks, during Gorbachev's administration, how much effort or information did he release in regards to Stalin's administration to the Russian people? How much did Gorbachev release of information about Stalin?
2: Um, I think he, yes. Under pressure, he allowed the information, as a rule, uh, to come forward. Uh, once they had elections and uh, Congress of People's Deputies, one of the first, um, one of the uh, first questions was raised: was whether there had been a Nazi-Soviet Pact back in 1939 because the the Soviets had never admitted uh, that there was a secret protocol uh, to the so-called Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So one of the first questions raised and they set up a committee to investigate this. Now this committee could not find uh, the Russian copy uh, of of that uh, but they concluded on basis of other evidence that it had existed. Uh, actually, all the West had uh, was a photocopy uh, that had been uh, secreted in Germany uh, during the war. Uh, but uh, uh, they found enough evidence uh, and they, they reported that yes, it, uh, it had existed. Uh, and uh, uh, so he allowed that to go forward. Now, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the, um, uh, the copy of the treaty was in fact found uh, in, and in the archives held by the general secretary. And the question is, uh, did he know that? I suspect he did not. After all, uh, he was not one to be able to go down and know what was in the full archive. Most of us thought that after the German invasion, uh, that Stalin would have had it destroyed, uh, but apparently he didn't. Uh, but uh, so, but I would say in this case, Gorbachev didn't produce the evidence, probably because he didn't know it was there. Uh, but he allowed the process to go forward, and the conclusion of those uh, investigating it was that yes, it had existed, and it was declared uh, it was declared invalid of novo that is invalid from the very
1: beginning. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think one of the Soviet leaders, one of his predecessors, who he was influenced most by was Khrushchev. And for example, his 1956 uh, de-Stalinization speech. How important was Khrushchev's influence on uh, Gorbachev?
2: Gorbachev was quite aware of what happened to Khrushchev. And he I think, at least initially, he took some uh, measures uh, to avoid uh, facing that, but eventually, of course, there was uh, the effort, uh, as it had been, uh, to uh, uh, oust to, uh, him. However, he was maneuvering to avoid that. That's why he proposed uh, establishing a presidency, they had never had a presidency before, and to in effect replace the party Politburo with a state council of people whom he named. So he began to set up, uh, I would say, change the institution in a way that would uh, avoid uh, the uh, being controlled by the uh, Politburo as had been the case uh, earlier. Uh, Obviously, in the final analysis, it didn't succeed, uh, though it has succeeded probably for about two years, uh, putting off what easily could have happened earlier.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Khrushchev, of course, in retirement, when he was pushed out, was put under severe house arrest. That didn't happen to Gorbachev. So was Gorbachev uh, did he tell himself he was lucky that he had a much better retirement uh, age?
2: Well, I'm not sure. Uh, the thing is, uh, Yeltsin had agreed uh, that he would have a, uh, an institute and, uh, and a number of other things. And then when Gorbachev criticized some things he did, Yeltsin would take back some of these things that uh, had been uh, given him. But there was one thing very clear uh, that uh, Gorbachev did not set and use his position to set aside uh, uh, riches or expensive uh, places uh, to live. Uh, he, uh, and, uh, and so that, uh, you know, in that sense, he was sort of a t- typical communist leader. Uh, he, uh, he used what the state, you know, uh, offered him, uh, uh, and most party le- leaders lived better than ordinary people, but they didn't. Uh, they didn't become rich, uh, in and of themselves, and so he was not at all like the leaders that succeeded him, uh, who who piled up, uh, in many cases, uh, millions uh, under their personal control.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Willow, do we have another question?
0: We do. Um, We have a question from Scott Schwartz. Um, How did Gorbachev feel about the Chinese? Did he feel that they were neighbors that he could trust?
2: That again is a, uh, something of a moving train. Uh, Gorbachev, his predecessors, uh, the Soviet Union and, China had come close, had actually had clashes on the border and had at times come close uh, to war uh, under uh, uh, Khrushchev and earlier. I think that uh, Gorbachev was trying really to improve relations. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons uh, he didn't uh, uh, publicly criticize the uh, a suppression of the students on Tenor Men Square. Uh, but, uh, and he also was trying to improve relations with Japan. In general, I think he wanted the, the best possible relations with everybody. Uh, but uh, uh, the tensions with China had been much higher earlier, and they were gradually dissipated uh, uh, under Gorbachev.
1: Thank you. Let me encourage our audience uh, to ask a couple of more questions because we have a few minutes' time. But I would like to ask Ambassador Matlock whether he views um, Gorbachev as a tragic figure, you know, full of promise, full of vigor and energy, but in the end, he does not succeed with uh, his grand objectives. Or is that a wrong interpretation of the man's um, long uh, I think uh, language. Language. on one, only one side of what he did. Uh, and as I
2: sometimes thinking for an analogy, I would say, you know, Moses is credited for taking his people out of bondage. He is not criticized that he didn't reach the promised land.. <laughs> Think about that. And the thing is, the Soviet system could not easily been changed bottom up. It was so that the person in charge had so much power that at any point, if things seemed to be getting out of town, if he, and it was always a he, wanted to stay in power, He had plenty of power to suppress them. Gorbachev didn't. Instead, he methodically took the power out of the hands of the party. And that he didn't really have to do that. And the only reason he did it was the idealistic reason that this country isn't getting anywhere. He would often say privately to us, Uh, That, you know, this is a country which has always been ruled top down. If we look out at the world and other countries, the successful ones are ruled bottom up. My task is reversing the tendency of Russian history. And then he would add, but I can't do it overnight. Because Russia has no experience with bottom-up governing. It's going to have to come in stages. Well, it didn't come fast enough. Uh, And uh, on the other hand, when one looks at the problems of how, as I said, how you convert a submarine to an airplane, keep it operating, keep the same crew on board, which is in effect what they were trying to do to that economy. How do you do it? Well, actually it's only gonna happen if the old system collapses. And until you can build a new one, which doesn't happen overnight, you're going to have chaos and a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. Is there any other action? I don't think there is. And uh, so I think he gets credit should get a lot, first of all, for negotiating an end to the Cold War under terms which were quite favorable to everybody. The answer that they lost the Cold War is crazy. Uh, after all, we all gained from the end of the Cold War. Uh, and then uh, the uh, conversion of the Soviet Union to a democratic free economy, uh, a market economy, when it had been almost the opposite, was something that probably uh, uh, was going to take a generation or two, and not simply a simple leader. And he has been ex- uh, succeeded by people who have not been willing, uh, ultimately, to follow the Democratic group anymore, and who are unlike him willing to apply force, uh, which is an old Russian tradition. So we're still getting an effort to solidify the top down rather than the bottom up. That's the opposite of what he was trying to achieve.
1: Thank you very much indeed. I see a question by uh, Mark Kramer of the Davis Center of Harvard University. Jess, would you like to uh, ask that question or summarize it?
3: I'm um, sure, just give me one moment. So by late 1987 and especially 1988, before the elections to Congress, um, the, Stalin area, or the Stalin era repressions became a subject of intense interest in the USSR. Um, this made it possible for publications, um, sorry. This made it pop- possible for publications like many others.
2: <laughs> I was just talking about the, uh, the freedom to publish, or uh, I'm not sure what the question is. No, was. no,
1: there were, there were many publications coming out about the purges, about Stalin's gulags, about oh, uh, yeah. Stalin's.
2: Yep. Uh, yes, yes, he revived that. You know, the first criticism of Stalin that occurred with the Show. But then they began to backtrack and uh, have many others. Uh, But Gorbachev uh, uh, allowed a a real campaign of exposing uh, Stalin's crimes. Uh, And uh, uh, so that was a step-by-step thing. But certainly by uh, 1989, 1990, uh, there was almost total freedom uh, in the press to uh, investigate Stalin's crimes and, and the other things, and, and to discuss them. Yes. In fact, I would say by 91, uh, the Soviet press uh, and media in general, though they were still state owned and state controlled, were freer than they have ever been before or since.
1: Yeah, thank you. And Soviet archives became accessible, which was also a new thing, and we still benefit from that because many photocopies were taken, many photos taken, which are still available in the Western world for researchers to use. There are a a couple of other questions. Willow, would you uh, ask the next question? Can you you bear with us for a few more uh, minutes because we'll have a few more questions here? (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: Give it another uh, seven, eight minutes at max, and then we'll finish the session. All right. Thank you.
0: Uh, We have a question from Don Van Atta. He asks Could you comment on how Gorbachev emerged as a leader, especially given his apparent patrons Andropov and Kolakov?
2: How did he emerge as a leader? Yes. You know, first of all, he uh, he climbed the, you might say, the the ladder in leadership uh, by, uh, I think, one uh, being unusually uh, uh, diligent uh, uh, and in carrying out uh, uh, what he was doing, and seeming quite loyal. Uh, to uh, the people above, uh, and and among a number of the, you might say, second level Soviet officials, uh, he he was one who was relatively efficient, uh, and uh, in effect, you know, he he did was able to curry favor with uh, some of the top people at the time. He was. Uh, in charge of a, a province where a lot of them came for their vacation in the South, there at Kostadar. So that uh, I think he was brought in by, um, mainly by uh, Andropov, uh, uh, who, uh, who understood that the system needed some changes. Now they wanted, he was interested in only very limited changes but there was a general recognition that things weren't working well. And Gorbachev was brought to Moscow uh, along with uh, uh, Rishkov, who was his prime minister for several years, with the orders to secretly to make some reform plans. Uh, And uh, they talked about this uh, later after they were in power. Uh, So that, uh, and then, Finally, the old generation, after Brezhnev and then Andropov and then Chernyenko, uh, they were all ill, dying off. You know, at one point, Reagan was accused of not meeting the Soviet leaders, and he said, well, you know, they keep dying on me. Uh, And so uh, I think the country was really desperate for... uh, 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 someone who, who would take charge and who was younger. And uh, Gorbachev, you know, seemed to to fit that. And I think he got uh, the support of uh, Gromyko. Uh, Gromyko, the longtime foreign minister, uh, probably would have liked to be number one himself. But when he realized he didn't have the votes, I think he thought he could sort of help make uh, Gorbachev the uh, uh, to, to be the uh, kingmaker. Uh, so he supported uh, uh, Gorbachev's election as, as general secretary. So that, um, But for us in the West, it was clear that uh, this was a very efficient uh, young man uh, uh, and who did not have many of the faults of the older generation. He was also much better educated uh, than they had been. Uh, but in any event, uh, uh, he rose to the top, basically having great loyalty to
1: the system, but with a growing recognition that the system needed to change. Thank you very much. There is one final question uh, about the Chernobyl disaster. How shocked was Gorbachev by that? Did that really uh, shock him to the bones? He was very much
2: shocked. Yeah, And it taught him, I think, a lot about the inefficiency within the party. And this is one of the reasons he began to take the party out of control of the economy. Uh, it was the shock of Chernobyl and, and the way it helped, but it was a shock not only for Gorbachev, but also for their military. Uh, I heard General Yasov say in private several times, never in public, that until Chernobyl, He had thought if there should be a nuclear war, the Soviet Union could prevail. And then he said, with Chernobyl, it was absolutely clear no one could win a nuclear war. And as a matter of fact, you don't even have to use nuclear weapons because you can bomb a nuclear power plant and disable the whole province. And, you know, uh, so, I think it taught also the Soviet military uh, that, you know, this this strategy of of using, of thinking that at some point, if you're pushed hard enough, you could use nuclear weapons. Suddenly you begin to realize, no, cannot be won and must never be fought. And that was the first thing that Reagan and Gorbachev were able to
1: agree on. Mm-hmm. thank you let's hope that Putin and the rest of the world keeps that in mind as well ambassador Jack madlock has been a great pleasure you enlightened us about Gorbachev the person gorbachev's Legacy gorbachev's uh, politics his achievements his huge achievements but also his failures and what he didn't achieve it has been a pleasure we have really been enlightened and I hope that you will be back sometime soon oh thanks. thank you Thank you very much for coming, and I would like to tell our audience that the next Krasno event is already tomorrow at 5.30 p.m., and we will talk about U.S.-China relations and the Taiwan question. So, another hot topic. I hope you will uh, tune in. You can use the same Zoom link as uh, for today. And we should also have uh, you know, a very exciting event with three panelists tomorrow China, US, and the Taiwan question. But thanks again, Ambassador Jack Madlock. It has <laughs> been a great pleasure. And right. thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. And um, Good night, and uh, you will soon be able to watch the video on our YouTube channel. Bye-bye for now.
0: Today's Big Picture comes from the Krasno Global Event Series at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to our speaker, Ambassador Matlock, and to you, our audience, for listening today.